0: I never understood how African Americans were expected to overcome and thrive and how they also expected that of themselves without the necessary mechanisms of healing.
1: The thing, Boris, is that I think that everyone from the outside, it's so clear. But here, it's not. I mean,
0: how is it not clear? How is that not clear?
2: Dear Truth Be Told. Dear Truth Be Told.
0: Dear Truth Be Told, I need your help.
1: I'm your host, Tanya Mosley, and on this episode of Truth Be Told, we're taking on a big question. A question this country has failed to reckon with for hundreds of years. How are black Americans truly expected to thrive in the United States without the necessary mechanisms for healing? Our question for this episode comes from actor Boris Kojo. You know I'm old school, so Boris will forever be Kelby from the movie Brown Sugar.
0: Man, that's what this is all about. You know, the dating, the awkward walks home, that's what men and women do.
1: He's also a father, a husband, an entrepreneur, and an activist. And every year, he and a few hundred of his friends take a trip to Ghana as part of an effort called Year of Return.
0: The most fun I have is watching all these friends that I have, and I bring them over there, and they all of a sudden recognize their own face.
1: The whole idea is to get black Americans, ripped from our homeland through slavery, connected to the continent.
0: And they go like, oh my gosh, she just looks like my, she looks like, like my Auntie Doris. You know, when you make that connection, it's so powerful because you all of a sudden you understand that you're not just, you're not that abandoned child anymore, yeah. you know.
1: Boris was born in Austria to a Ghanaian father and a German mother. And this passion he has for this yearly track comes from a reality that smacked him in the face when he first moved here to the United States some 20-something years ago, the collective erasure of black trauma.
0: That was my one question I always had when I came here, was like, okay, you know that for generations we've been subjected to severe trauma. I never understood how African-Americans were expected to overcome and thrive, and how they also expected that of themselves without the necessary mechanisms of healing.
1: Whew, man, that's the part of Boris's question that really gets me. It's the thing that black Americans all live with, whether we're conscious of it or not. We've got three options in this country. We pretend we're walking through life on an even playing field, or we work three times as hard to get to that playing field. Or we don't even try at all. These are survival tactics. There's no real healing here, not the way Boris is talking about. Like I said, this is a heavy topic. And so, to properly unpack Boris's quandary, I wanted to bring in a wise one whose life's work has really been about exploring exactly this very topic. He is honest, deeply introspective, and generous with his thoughts. And I feel like those traits are really the marks of a great writer, the willingness to explore openly the complexities of the human condition.
2: My name is Kiese Lehman. I'm a Black Southern writer from Jackson, Mississippi. Um, I'm currently a professor of English and creative writing at University of Mississippi.
1: He also is the author of three books, a novel, Long Division, and two memoirs, How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, and Heavy. And he joins us down in Oxford, Mississippi, where he was born and raised. I am so happy to have you.
2: I'm happy to be here, too.
1: (laughs) I actually wish I was down there talking to you. I always reference Mississippi is down there because I'm from Detroit, and that's how we always referenced it.
2: Oh, absolutely. I'm sure you have some people down here somewhere. Oh,
1: yeah. Every summer we would drive down. We'd all pile up in a car like it was dangerous because we weren't wearing seatbelts. And we would spend the summers. My family lives in Meridian, and oh, yeah. So,
2: so my grandmother lives in Forest, which is right next to Marie. Oh,
1: really? I swear our people probably know each other.
2: I'm telling you, we cousins. We, we <laughs> you just know. don't know it yet.
1: <laughs> that probably is true, really. Right. But yeah, I love and miss Mississippi. I haven't been down there in years.
2: You're always welcome. You're always welcome.
1: Well, I want to talk about your book, Heavy. I know that you... Um, have been on a tour. You have been talking to college students. Um, You have been doing a lot of things in the last few years. But your book, Heavy in Great Detail, explores your difficult relationship with your mother, who instilled in you a deep appreciation for knowledge. But this relationship was also pretty complicated. Um, You really write in great detail how your mother would... uh, beat you with the justification that you needed to be tough enough for a white world that would treat you even more harshly. And a few years ago, you wrote on Twitter, I am 43 years old. When my mother was 43, I was 24. I have no idea how she made it through all this violent American mess with a heavy black boy constantly tugging at her heart, head, and nerves. And of course, that's That's the thing that's, I think, struck anyone who has read your work because your mother's mindset, I mean, it's really a common one and it's rooted in racial trauma.
2: Absolutely. No question. You know, my mom um, definitely came up in a sort of post-civil rights era, um, believing that excellence was the way you could cloak yourself and shield yourself from white supremacy and, you know, I, I think when, when often she was confronted with the fact that that sometimes is true, but often is not true, uh, you know, like a lot of parents, I think she just didn't know what to do with herself, but definitely didn't know what to do with her children. And so my mom, I understand now, and, you know, and everything she was trying to do with me intellectually was just an attempt to try to protect me. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time, I did not understand that. Mm-hmm. and. Yeah. I don't have children now for lots of reasons, but one of the reasons is because I'm afraid of, of of some of the lessons that I might try to teach them um inadvertently.
1: You are? You're afraid?
2: Oh I'm definitely afraid. Definitely afraid. Definitely. I mean I teach I teach young people. You know, I mean I teach college students. I'm I'm in high schools, I'm in middle schools a lot. And uh I I, I don't trust myself as a parent i mean there are lots of reasons that i don't have children but the main reason is that i don't i don't trust myself in this country as a parent Mm. yeah
1: you know what i i have two children and i think i felt that same way before i had children in fact i think i actually said i don't envision myself with children and even people would say like i'm surprised you have two kids but really i never had um this conversation out loud but i was really really afraid that uh some of the things that i had dealt with as a as a kid in my family, mm-hmm. that somehow I would execute it in my own kids. Um, and I hear people who have children, and they're like the complete opposite of their parents. And I think like, right. wow, how do they do that?
2: <laughs> I don't want to be precious about it, but yeah, I'm just I'm just afraid of of um, I'm afraid of failing my children. I'm afraid of failing myself. Afraid of failing my parents. Afraid of my I'm afraid of failing my people. But I'm really terrified of having having children who I would fail. But everybody that I know who has children, like, man, get over that. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Quippy be is so you know, Quippy be is so special. Just just go on and like try to give some some being a chance um in this world. You know, I recommended
1: heavy to my mom's book club and it caused a really big stir for these fifty Uh-oh. plus year old moms of black sons. Right. I I'm just wondering, I mean, have you heard from mothers of black sons who read the book? And if so, what did they share with you?
2: That's a great, you know what? I've been talking about this book for like a year and a half and I never got that question. Um, Yeah. Mothers of black sons, I think are actually like the most critical of my book. And, 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 and I understand why, you know, because I think mothers of black sons, think that my book is a critique, not just of myself and my and my state and my mother, but a critique of them, mm-hmm. right? And, and what I try to say is that like, you know, it is partially a critique of my mother and parenting and, and all of that, but it's really like a love letter to black mothers who raise black sons and say, to say like, you know, I see a lot, we see a lot of what you're going through. We hope you see a lot of what we're going through, but we also have just both been lying to each other um and this you know like zest like to to survive i think both of us and i kind of wanted to say to my mother and other black mothers that we kind of don't have to lie anymore we can be tender and talk about the things that we've tried to forget Mm. and i don't know how we go forward healthily without those kind of conversations actually
1: yeah you know i mean I'm thinking that that conflict is in that it's a coping mechanism because now I just have young kids, but I can only imagine it's the hardest thing to have to look back and reflect on your relationship with your children and acknowledge the mistakes that you might have made because a life is just so precious and you know, it goes back to why you don't want to have children, you know?
2: Right. And I don't know if it's equally hard, but I think those of us who our children to parents know it's hard to tell our parents the truth about you know who we are in the dark and what our secrets actually are i think a lot of us want our parents to see us and view us and in obviously particular ways and like so that book wasn't just about my my telling my mom like you know i saw you it's also like mama like look like like, this is me. Like, this is this is my bout with addiction. This is my bout with disordered eating. This is my bout with love. This is my bout. These are, like, the intricacies in my bouts with, like, white supremacy. But also, mama, look at these celebratory, like, instances and moments and days and years of my life that I never took time to talk to you about. Mm. You know what I mean? So I just wanted to use an art, ironically, that she gave me to sort of, like, slow it all down and walk with her. Yeah. Backwards.
1: Yeah. I, uh thought of you for this next question that we have. You are the perfect wise one to really have this conversation about this question that Boris Kojo has and he continues to, to really grapple with. Let's listen.
0: Learning about history and learning about slavery and, and the post-traumatic slave syndrome and, and African-Americans and, and the plight of African-Americans here in this country over the past um, a couple of hundred years, and sort of comparing that to other people who had been oppressed and persecuted over the past hundreds of years. For instance, the Jews in Europe, yes. um, almost hundred years ago. I never understood how African Americans were expected to to thrive, how how they were expected to overcome. And thrive and how they also expected that of themselves
3: hmm.
0: without the necessary mechanisms of healing. I never understood that. Mm-hmm.
1: You know, the thing that really struck me the most about that question is when he says, and we expect it of ourselves.
2: Yeah, that's the complicated part, right? Yep. Yeah, you know, because the first part is it's 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 sort of simple. Like we weren't brought here to thrive we weren't brought here to do anything other than be labor um for you know wealthy land owning white folk and die and i think that our our worth was based on how how you know how good we could work um but you know and and this is what my work is about you know my, my grandmother was born in 1929 she's 90 years old you know what i mean she couldn't vote until she was like in her late 30s, Uh, she worked her entire life in white folks' homes and chicken plants. And after all of those years of working, the government gave her $430 a month, right? But so how did some, so I'm always interested in like, how did someone like her not just survive, but soulfully thrive? And and it's so cliche, but for her, I mean, there was one, a belief in in a particular kind of God, but the church as community- is sort of what helped my grandmother in rural mississippi survive and my grandmother stayed in rural mississippi when she could have left right like a lot of her brothers and sisters and cousins and her father and her mother you know you know she didn't she didn't go to indianapolis and detroit and chicago and Joliet. she stayed in mississippi um because she thought that that land and that right to that land and that right to uh a soulful connection to that land was hers and I think that, you know, my grandmother, I know, and I'm sure your people down in Miss Meridian, too, like she passed that on. But the, the, the hard part for me is the fact that, like, you know, my grandmother now is is dying, right? Yep. Like she has diabetes. She has dementia. Like her body's eating itself up. But I'm just like, uh, there's a part of me that's almost like bored. It's like, how did she even make it to 90? That's right. Like how, how did these people who grew up in Mississippi? Yep. You know what I'm saying? With nothing, yep. no wealth, but love, tons of love, tons of ingenuity and a belief in us and a belief in particular kinds of abundance. They made, I mean they they made it, yep. right? They made it through. But they weren't supposed to. I and I just think that that's what we need to I need to continually remind myself like we didn't they weren't we were not brought here to survive. Yeah. But but we collectively. Yep. Like I think decided that we were going to do a little something different than what we were brought here to do.
1: I feel that so deeply. My grandmother's 94 and she lives in Detroit. Wow. Yeah, and um like your grandmother, I mean, she, you know, she she says to me like, Tanya, you if I could go back to 40, I would be. You are in the best time of your life. <laughs> like she tells me that all the time. Um but I heard talking about me being at this point of 40. Like I've been really thinking about it really deeply about how things have shifted for me from being um, idealistic to feeling a Mm -hmm. lot of anger and feeling Mm -hmm. um, day-to-day sort of this feeling of the weight of racism on my shoulders. And I think, Mm -hmm. as you said, but then there's people like our grandmothers who still have joy in their hearts. And, yeah, this is what it is. But you have as my offspring as my grandchildren like what they want for us is just to continue to thrive i feel like maybe right. it's just genetic it's in our genes it's like meant as a ooh. means of survival
2: ooh we now see that's that's what i want to believe you know what i mean like that's that's what i that's what i want to believe but but i'm also interested for your grandmother like was there like was there like a central location like was not just you know christian church but was there like a like a community of folks who were connected in around her to help her thrive? Was it familial? Like, oh, yeah. you know, I just think isolation kills us. Like how did how did your grandmother concretely make it? You know what, you make up a really good point because so many
1: of us right now, we've gone on for the benefit of our careers to these isolating spaces and we're doing well yeah. in our careers. But my grandparents left Meridian and DeCab when they were like 18 years old and they made mm-hmm. their way up to Detroit to work in the automotive industry. And they were welcomed with a whole bunch of other people who had come from the South. And, like, right. they built community that way. And church, of course, was a big, I mean, it's still a huge part of her life. But that sense yeah. of community is, like, you really bring up a good point. That's, like, that connectedness and that building of community is kind of what's missing in my life, I know. What about you?
2: Oh, my goodness. You're getting too real now. I mean, <laughs> it's definitely missing in mine. You know, it's, a uh, yeah, you know, and, and, and I think... If we're really going to be honest, like, this is the first year of my life when I was just like, okay, say like, you really made a mistake not having children mm-hmm. for lots of reasons, but selfishly because, like, it's, like, incredibly lonely, right? And, I, you know, it's, it's hard to do the woe is me thing when, you know, people on the s- outside look at you and feel like you are successful. Mm-hmm. Uh, but whatever I have going on success-wise, it, 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 it hasn't, like, protected my heart from feeling, like, isolation. Yeah. From regret, um, and from actually, oftentimes the opposite of that community that I know raised me, and that I know is why I'm here. Mm-hmm. And I, but 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 what you're saying is like you know none of us are alone and feeling that isolation. Mm-hmm. I think we just maybe don't talk, find space to talk, and feel through it enough. Yeah, for sure. What do you think?
1: I think so. You know, I'm I'm really at a I don't know. Like, this is a point that I think of a lot. Like, I know you lived other places and you decided you made a conscious decision to move back to Mississippi. Like, I do think like, is my place in Detroit? Am I supposed to Mm. be going back there? Um, Mm. It's something I grapple with, but you know, I was thinking a little bit more about Boris's question. Like that idea of us coming from a place of, um, being stripped from our homeland and, um, here as slaves and then slavery is over and it's like okay you're free you pull yourself up by your bootstraps i talk about that whole Clarence thomas thing a lot um and then why aren't you on the same level economically socially all of these things like don't you you know people like there are, are white people out there who just really feel like Race is like we live in a post-racial society and they don't know why we continue to bring it up. But he says, like, without the proper mechanisms for healing, what does healing even look like for you?
2: Well, I mean, I think the wonderful, you know, he could have intended this or not, but the wonderful, like, subtext of that question, um, to me, it makes me wonder, like, you know, I, I teach sometimes lots of white kids and, you know, who've, who come from wealth, who... On the surface have like all the mechanisms for healing, and I think they've done a atrocious job at healing. Mm. Do you know what i'm saying so what what I think that boris's question i think should make us understand is that like you know when you when you live in a in a society that is rooted in among other things like genocide of indigenous people the theft of 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 black folks in transatlantic slavery. It's hard to heal, not just for the folks who are like the victims of that, right? Like the victims of that are are like white folk Mm, mm, as well, mm. emotionally. You know, I don't look around at white folk and be like, oh, they've done a great job Mm. healing. But with us, you know, I I actually think that our healing mechanisms, if I had to say, (laughs) and this is what's scary I think are a little bit better than white folks, at least down here in Mississippi, at least more tender, at least more loving. You know what I mean? Like we treat people down here, black folk, I know. we definitely treat white folk, not with just a reverence, but with a tenderness that I think we should all be treated with. Mm. And that is without access to those mechanisms, right? Mm. So I think the mechanisms need to be questioned. And I think the harm done with the, with an abundance or with a lack, sometimes can have similar ends.
1: When you talk about the way that people treat each other in Mississippi and that being sort of a form of, of healing, I do miss it. Like, people are so kind. <laughs> it's so true. It's just true, right? It's just true. It's just I true. Mean, You're just walking down the street. Hi, how you doing? Like, I don't, it's just like all of that. That is like, we <laughs> take for granted, like just the yeah. acknowledgement of your humanity as a as a means of healing because it doesn't happen Absolutely. everywhere.
2: Absolutely.
1: I actually uh, heard a, conversation a while ago with a black psychologist who was talking about how we're seeing higher suicide rates uh, in black Mm -hmm. children now Mm -hmm. more than ever before. And Mm -hmm. I was trying to think about what's different today than in the past. And that isolation is one of the big things. Like he talked about Mm -hmm. now religion is not meant for everyone, but religion um, provided that sense of community for young people.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and, and I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be dogmatic because, you know, I, th- I think, I think black folks have used social media to extend like resistant traditions. Right. But one of the things we also see in social media is like we have more access to black pain and suffering. Whether, you know, it's black women and black men or black genderqueer people, but I wish that we had a much more robust care and concern for like our interiority, our intellectual and mental interiority, psychological interiorities, all of us. And in the absence of that, I think suicide rates are going to have to continue to rise. But, you know, because I'm my grandmother's child, I have to believe and know that there are people out there who are fighting for like the you know, the integrity of all of our lives. Yeah. And some of, you know, some of that fight is being done by you. Some of that fight is being done by me, but there are also young people out there who are courageously like just fighting to live as much as the rates of suicide have gone up. I think it's important that also, I think rates of activism have also gone That's up true. in different, in different ways. Right. Yeah. So that is what gives me not just hope, but like, that is what, makes me feel less isolated ironically like knowing that there are people out here including young people yeah. who are fighting for all of us to live and that's a part of our freedom tradition in this country right yeah
1: it's so true yeah i am i am so taken by the young people i don't know what was wrong with with my uh generation <laughs> we are like
2: in a sunken place <laughs> or something like <laughs> i don't know <laughs> i mean i think about that a lot but just with athletes you know lebron james gets critiqued for a lot and whether people you know valid or not but i remember i grew up you know Jordan and Barkley and all of these athletes in the 80s and 90s yep. and all kinds of stuff was happening yep. like crack was ravaging us you know cops were killing us uh the the wealth disparity was was, was like huge and they didn't say nothing mm-hmm. they didn't say a damn thing yep. right and I'm not blaming them but what I'm trying to say is that like I don't I, I want us to really take heed of some of what young folks have done yep. Right, in different areas. And we see a different kind of, for example, we see a different kind of care and commitment from black athletes. I think we see a different kind of care and commitment from black artists. Mm-hmm. I think we see a different kind of care and commitment from black workers in this country in mass. And so I don't wanna be like the hunky dory guy. Yeah. But sometimes I have to be the hunky dory guy because I wanna go to sleep and wake up in the morning, right? I wanna believe that I'm a part of a continued tradition that is evolving even though sometimes it's hard to believe it. Yep. But, I, but I have to believe it, right? I have to believe it.
1: Mm. You know, I spoke recently with historian and author Ibram Kendi, and yes. we had a discussion about Boris's question, and he said we have to first name the harms of racism. And he breaks down these harms in two ways. Let's listen.
3: There are many different levels of the effects of of racism, of anti-Black racism on Black people. There's the literal material effects. You know, black people are disproportionately poor in this country. White people have about 10 times the median wealth. Like, all of these things are, in many ways, the result of racist policies. And it's critical for folks to figure out ways to challenge those policies, to eliminate those policies, to replace them with more with more anti-racist policies. And that takes, of course, a tremendous amount of struggle, and, it, and it's going to take a tremendous amount of time, but I don't see any other option.
1: Kiese, that's that's kind of exactly what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about reparations?
2: Uh, I feel like <laughs> I, mean, I feel like we need we, we deserve them. We need them. I think I think I think white people morally deserve to live in a country where reparations for black people and indigenous folks are a necessity. Oh, that framing people. I think white people morally need to live in a country where reparations for harmed, targeted populations of Black and indigenous folks are necessary. But of course, of course, of course, white folks need to share the wealth that they got off the backs of people who worked for free. That's just basic. Yeah. And then he says
1: there are the internal effects.
3: When you, as a Black person or, you know, as a Black community have been raised in a nation that continuously generation after generation have told you that you're nobody, have told you that you're subhuman, have told you that black is ugly, at some point you may come to believe that and then you may come to look in the mirror and hate yourself. And I think we can heal in that way. We can literally say, you know, the only thing wrong with black people is that we think something is wrong with black people and there's everything wrong with this society. And, and to take that position is to essentially begin the healing process.
1: So talking about the external and the internal, and then the mechanisms for healing. I mean, I was really struck by, by putting it in this way. Um, but your thoughts about this?
2: Well, I mean, I had, I had questions about that, if that's okay. Yeah, please. I mean, you know, so, I absolutely agree and believe every word that he said. And, you know, and I teach his book. I love his work. But I also wonder, you know, like <laughs> um, anti-blackness is something that all Americans and one could argue everyone in this globe have to kind of contend with. Absolute, Right. We all do. But If we are, if we are all contending with this anti-blackness as I know we are, what 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 I'm speaking to is like the wonder that we still, I think, collectively often try to do what's in the best interest not just of us but other suffering people across this country. And so I'm asking, I'm wondering, like, why the anti-blackness that manifests in us is different than the anti-blackness that might manifest in, like, you know, white folks in this country.
1: Oh, I see what you're saying, but you know what the thing about what, uh, Ibram is saying is like. I think he's saying if if we're trying to get to the mechanisms of healing, part of healing is really contending with those material effects and like really all of us being activists in every way Absolutely. we can in that realm. Right. And then when it comes to those internal effects, like stopping that thing that we always, I know it's in your family, I know you've heard it with your friends, but like this expectation of us, like I, okay, an example is like, Even talking to my mom the other day, she was like, we as black people got to do better at so-and-so. And (laughs) And I'm like, no, mom, you have to understand, like, this idea is a manifestation because of white supremacy. And so we don't, as black people, have to do anything but just live and be free and, like, take care of our families and do whatever the hell we want to do.
2: Right. So,
1: but there is this expectation that, like, somehow we are inferior and we have to
2: collectively pull ourselves up from our bootstraps. Right. Which is, which is, which is just wow to me. Right. Because like, again, this is, this is where being in Mississippi is so helpful for this conversation because our folks, right. Not just my folks, but our folks set the blueprint for global freedom and directed action across the globe with nothing, right. Like with, with nothing but strength, ingenuity, um, imagination um and collective will. And so so it's 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 interesting to me that in the face of all of these material deficits and all this precarity we still have a history particularly in this state this state which is kind of like neglected and 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 you know this state which is 50th in everything we're, we're, we're not 50th in um organized struggle. We're not 50th in um setting the terms what people mean when they say civil rights. We're actually number one in that. Mm. And so it it just I just I just again like you caught me on the day when I'm usually cynical and I'm usually mm. pessimistic. But today, you know, I feel like the the, the breath and the and and and, and the and, and the fight of those folk who imagined us being where we are before we could even imagine it. But I actually think they imagined more. Mm. And that's the thing that that Converse, this conversation with you, and actually that question with with, with uh, by Boris makes me think about it. it's like what like what what next? Yes, we need material change. Yes, we need to be paid adequately for work that we and our ancestors have done. And how do we tend to our interiority along the way? Yeah, that's the harder that's the hardest part of the question for me. Like, how do we actually tend to that?
1: And thinking about the mechanisms for healing. Uh, on an individual level, what do you do to care for yourself, to like bring yourself to that place each and every day to get closer and closer to being whole?
2: Man, that's that's the question. Um, first thing I think I, I need to say is that I fail. And we all do. Health, yes. And one of the healthiest things for me is being able to accept and admit that I have failed. I have failed in my treatment of myself, treatment of my state, treatment of, my, of the globe, Failed in treatment of people who were close to me, um, and 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 again personally for me it's easy to kind of get lost and swim in that failure. So that's mm-hmm. why I'm saying you caught me on a good day where I need to accept that failure is part of revision. Mm-hmm. And the same thing that I'm asking the nation to do, like I need to be willing to do as an individual who is friends with mostly Black folks in this country, I need to be able to think about like what a re- reparative like like logic looks like in my in my relationships with people close to me and far away. And I just don't think we can repair the things we've done wrong if we don't articulate with care and tenderness the things we've done wrong. And if we don't listen to people who we've harmed, tell us with, 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 with sort of precision how we've harmed them. So on my best days when I heal, I've listened to myself and I've listened to people who I've harmed. Another thing that I've done is I've, I've done sort of what might seemingly be diametrically opposed to that is like, you know, I listen to people who actually say, say you've meant a lot to me. Mm-hmm. And that for me and my personality type is hard. It's hard for me to hear people tell me good things that I've done. I run away from that. I don't like to read great press. I'm much more fueled by bad press. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So... I need to go to therapy, <laughs> and, in the <laughs> absence of, and in the absence of therapy, what I need to do is be able to accept with like equal vigor um, the harm I've done in my life to people close to me, and also I need to accept like the joy that I've brought to human beings close to me. And at my best, I'm able to do that, and at my worst, I'm completely incapable of doing that.
1: Hmm. I bet our grandmas have some, some good answers.
2: Oh, yes, indeed. But see, yeah. And all my grandmama's answers are going to begin with God and end with God. Right? I know. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's all my grandmama's answers is going to be like, I put it in the Lord's hands, baby, which which in some way is taking a lot of the actual like like work that I've seen her do like off of her shoulders right she wants to give it all to god give yeah, the glory my to god too. i'm like yeah. okay grandma i'm going to get the glory to god but i want to give you the glory and that's what i try to do in all my work if you really look at what connects all three of my books and this other work i have coming out like i'm really attempting to not just celebrate and mourn but actually like make canonical like the mm. work and the love that our grandmother and that doesn't mean that they're perfect at yeah. all yeah. like i want to see all the mess you know i want to see the scabs as much as i want to see that incredible hat that she wore you know, Easter Sunday. But I know that the foundation for liberation is in that generation. Yeah. You know, I know the foundation for liberation is in Fannie Lou Hamers and Ida B. Wells. You know what I'm saying? Is it Mamie Till? Is it my grandmama, Catherine Coleman? We got the foundation. We just got to remix it. And thankfully, I think young people are doing it. I think we kind of middle-aged people need to maybe catch on.
1: Kiese, you're awesome. Thank you. You are so awesome too, Tanya. Thank you. You know, I always thought it was our survival tactics that allowed us to move through this world and thrive as black people in America. But Kiese's advice is really a reframing. He's basically saying it's our healing tactics that have helped us through. Religion, children, community, connection, kindness, music, food, culture, love, all of it. That's healing. And so in answering Boris's question, Kiese is saying, we actually already have the mechanisms for healing. That's not to discount the real harms that we're still living with, those external and internal impacts that Ibram Kendi was talking about. But as he said, it's gonna take all of us to in real ways take on an activist-like role against anti-blackness. And that role looks different for different people, but it's essential. I wanna hear from you. What does healing for black America look like? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is Truth Be Told KQED, or use our hashtag #AskTBT. On our next episode of Truth Be Told, we're bringing in Virgie Tovar as one of our wise ones. I'm pretty. I'm pretty brazen. I'm like, I will not be weighed, and if you do not respect this, I will terminate this appointment right now. Virgie's new podcast, Rebel Eaters Club, just launched. It's a body-positive and unapologetically food-positive show that's all about breaking up with diet culture. Every episode features a rebel eater, kind of like our wise ones. And you can find out more at rebeleatersclub.com. And make sure to tune in to our next episode of Truth Be Told, because I'll be talking with Virgie and comedian Chloe Hilliard about body image, fat phobia, and taking up space. You don't want to miss it. Truth Be Told is produced by LaToya Tools and Isabeth Mendoza. KQED's leadership team includes Julie Kane, Vinnie Tong, Ethan tovan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. A big thanks to Kiana Mogadam, Katie McMurran, Melissa Kuypers, and NPR West in Culver City, California. Truth Be Told is a production of KQED in San Francisco. I'm Tanya Mosley.